0: Kia ora and welcome to this Heritage Collections podcast. I'm Hainu Royal and in this episode I will be talking with Christina Sanders about her recently published novel Journingham. The Journingham in the title refers to one of New Zealand's colonial history's most colourful characters, Journingham Wakefield, the only son of New Zealand company founder Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Now he's been described by various commentators, including his own father, as a wastrel, a failure, talented and intelligent. And reckless, weak willed, contentious, promiscuous, and generally unstable. No less a personage's Governor Fitzroy described him as the devil's missionary. Kia ora, Christina. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Kia ora, Hanoi. Thank you very much for having me along today. Well, he
0: sounds like a perfect character for a drama, doesn't he? Was it this rather dodgy reputation that led you to being interested in, in, in seeing him as a character for a novel?
1: Um, yes, it was. The quote that you've given me there is the one that I found when I was researching uh, early Wellington in. Uh, I was down in the um, Wellington Library, and I just want to know a bit more about, about what happened in the early days in the founding of Wellington. I grew up in Wellington. I didn't do my history at school. And I was exploring just various early settlers. And these guys, all the Wakefields, I mean, it's not just Jerningham. The whole pack of Wakefields are a pack of scoundrels. And Jerningham came up, and um, I read that quote, I thought, yeah, I've got to write about him. He's the perfect, perfect character. Because you can, in a way... Um, I've got two boys and a girl, but my two boys have been through that, they've been 19, they're older now, but they've been through that stage where their brains aren't quite connected. And they're adventurous and they're wild and they go out and they want to live life and the whole world's their oyster and they want to gobble everything up. And Jerningham was a bit like that. He was young, but he was off leash and his father had just let him go off with his uncle. No one really had a hold on him. His mother had died giving birth to him, basically. So he was didn't really have anyone containing him, and he just went off off his rocker in a really quite marvellous way, I think. So, yeah, very interesting man.
0: How would you describe the Wakefields? His father certainly also had a rather, um, how would you say, dodgy again? (laughs) It's a great word, dodgy. You know, a guy who um, uh, kidnapped an heiress, you know, spent time in prison, and then became this master created this master plan of colonisation New Zealand, which doesn't endear him to modern New Zealanders. Mm. How would you characterise the Wakefield family itself?
1: Oh, I love that question. I, I'm really actually quite fascinated by Edward Gibbon-Wakefield. They were, they were extraordinary men. I mean, Gibbon-Wakefield and Jerningham were the two in the family who were really brilliant, but the other Wakefields were a pack of... I mean, they were all dodgy in a way, but... Um, I think the big influences on those men, on the whole family, were the women in the family, and they're quite often overlooked. But the grandmother, Priscilla, was; she had the money. She was a Barclay originally, and then she married into the Wakefields, and there were two Wakefields, her husband, and the, they're all called Edward, and they all lost all the money. But she was a great philanthropist, and she was on the prison hunks with Elizabeth Fry, I think she was an um, aunt or something, or a cousin. And they were great reformers, her, and then also Edward Gibbon-Wakefield's oldest sister, um, she was also, Catherine, she was also a great philanthropist. And they did a huge amount of work for reform, agriculture reform, prison reform. They looked after women who had fallen, which basically meant pregnant without being married. Um, and the men did have this streak of philanthropy, honest philanthropy, I think, that went through them. And they were interested in reform, which was really interesting in Victorian times. Reform is often overlooked, but there was this idea that you could reform people and help them. And that's very patronising now. We look at it and think, you know, why should you be able to reform people? But they really believed that. And it would give Wakefield. When he was in prison, he, as you say, had been, um, he abducted an heiress. That's another wonderful story which should be written. Um, But he abducted this heiress and spent this time in prison. And when he was there, he did huge amounts of prison reform. I mean, there were terrible things in that time. The women were all thrown in with the men. And he arranged that they should be separated, segregated, have women warders. Um, things like people were hanged, children were hanged for stealing and his reforms led to the death penalty only for capital offences. So he did a lot of really good work um, and he got to know the underclasses quite well, what we call the underclasses, but the people who end up in jail, mainly through poverty, poverty or, or other you know, medical reasons. Um, and he did work very hard. And one of his big ideas about colonization, about the colonies, was t- was to help these people, to go and give them fresh pastures. He talked a lot about fresh pastures. Unfortunately, there were already people living in the fresh pastures, but mm-hmm. he didn't take that into account. Mm-hmm. Um, so, complex, really complex things to think about. And we often get that real one-sided view now of colon- colonization, but um, I, I'm interested in where they came from and why they came. And at the time, there. It was a complex set set of situations that sent sent them through.
0: As you wrote and developed the character in the novel, the the Journey and character, what were the key characteristics that sort of. Was it something that you had planned in your mind around, okay, I know he's reckoning these things and it plays out? Or did, as you you developed, it sort of started telling the story and and the the character came to life?
1: I kind of. I I lived Journey I mean, my poor husband, Jenningham, joined our family and he ate with us every night at dinner. I didn't talk about anything else because so many people wrote about him. It's not only his own journals, but everybody else was writing about the trouble he got into, the newspapers and the time, and you can get them all online, of course. You know, all the newspapers, they were full of him. He was, um, yeah, a lot of people wrote about him. So I had quite a fair grip of his character from the beginning. And then I, to write the story, I wanted to make it as true as possible. I didn't want to make too much... You know, fantasy out of it. So I got a whole lot of incidents from the time. I sort of went through about five years and picked up parts of history that I thought would be interesting to weave into the story, like the Waipara affair and the um, his trips up to Whanganui, the founding of Whanganui, uh, Hobson coming in, declaring them all rebels and treacherous people, and this sort of thing. All these bits that I thought were really interesting parts of history, and then I wove the story through those and. Found out where Jerningham was at the time and wrote the story around that. So if Jerningham was up at Wanganui when something happened, I invented a character who would be up at Wanganui with him so we could report back and this sort of thing. So the story was kind of it's a real story in that the events are all true in the right order, right. and I just had to imagine what Jerningham, who I thought I knew quite well by then, would do in each of those situations.
0: So the Arthur Lugg character. Yeah. Can you tell us a little about Arthur Lugg? And he's the, entirely invented. You've invented this character. I invented so that character. He was a useful device for you too.
1: Yeah, it's, it, because joining in his own journals, he's so arrogant. You know, he sort of writes about the glorious things he did, and he was always the hero of everything, and everybody else was wrong. And I wanted to have someone in the background to say, hang on, maybe it's not quite like that. And also, we're, we're telling, I'm telling the story of New Zealand's colonial times, which is kind of a difficult story to tell at the moment. And I wanted to tell it as it was at the times, and not bring modern judgment into it. But I did want somebody there putting a few questions out. I mean, not too many, keeping it in context, keeping it Victorian. Mm-hmm. But I did want the odd question saying, hang on, should, uh, who's buy, who are you buying that from? And uh, do they know about And I just wanted these questions in, but nobody at that time was asking those questions. So I brought a man in who was kind of on the side just to ask the questions, not in an obvious way, but just to show that there were questions here that weren't being asked because it's kind of what you don't put into a story that tells the story, if you know what I mean. It's the questions that aren't there. And you hope people are reading and thinking, but what about, but why didn't they? You know, I want people to think like that, to read between the lines and think there's an awful lot missing here. And there was missing because it was, you know, 180 years ago and they, it was missing. The things, that should have, the things people should have known were missing. So Arthur, like, was there just to kind of keep that balance going, I think.
0: Now, given the fact he seemed to have an extraordinarily strong ego, um, <laughs> How accurate do you think his telling of the stories, because there's a lot of of storytelling that he does, and he's there, some very significant events Mm. with significant Mm. people Mm. of uh, Maori and European, uh, of that period, in the 1820s, 1830s. How accurate do you think he is? How much bullshitting, really, is this guy doing?
1: Uh, I think in his stories, in his journals, there's a lot of bullshit there. I think... um, the way he sees things is the way he wants to see things in the world, according to Journey and Wakefield, and he was really drunk for a lot of it. You know, from about 1842 or three, he was just drunk almost the whole time. Um, but I have tried, when I've put an event in, and it's an important event, like Wairau, I, he wasn't there. I mean, I, I tried to get four or five, because every story, there's thousands of different ways of looking at a story. So when I was telling a major incident, or for example, when Hobson comes to town in Wellington, I, I looked at that through four, at least four or five other people's viewpoints to find out what the guts of the story was, and then I looked at how Jerningham would have looked at it and told Arthur Lugg, looking at Jerningham, looking at the story the way I saw it. It's kind of it's hard to explain. It's quite a complicated process, but I brought in um, Arthur to do that to sort of temper Jerningham a bit to say Jerningham's doing this, but of course he's he yeah. I mean I think there is it's it's stretched. Um, but I think I, I think the major incidents that happened were true. I mean that, that they've been documented by different people. I mean I'm talking about the colonials here. I don't know from the Maori side of things. I was very careful not to um, do incidents that I couldn't verify. Mm. So, it was, it was so how did
0: you handle it in the Maori perspective? Because there's an enormous amount. I mean he's in in amongst the significant rangatira of that time and Ngāti yes. Tō, Ngāti Raukawa, yep. Ngāti Apa, up in Tūro, up in Fanganui. Yes. Ha, what was your, how did you approach the Māori material given the fact he's actually you know this observer of mm. a number of significant mm. events?
1: I, I tried to stay as an observer yeah. so I never ever wrote from a Māori point of view, I didn't take that perspective at all. No. I took the perspective of Europeans trying to understand or maybe not trying to understand, trying to come to terms with the association they had with Maori, and predominantly it was really positive in those first couple. You know, it's surprising the thing you don't get now from talking about colonial relationships is a lot of it was really positive. A lot of them made good friends, and I've never heard a bad word about Tipunu, for example. He was mm-hmm. everybody, every all the colonials said they had a relationship with them and it was very positive. Mm-hmm. And he was um, he was a good negotiator. If they were doing something stupid, he would tell them, and he would explain things to them. So there were. Um, a lot of Europeans talking about the Māori in Wellington at that time and so I read everything I could from a European point of view and then I took that perspective. I'm talking from Arthur Lugg's point of view and this is how Arthur Lugg would have seen it. So it may be that he saw it inaccurately but that's part of the story, that's how Arthur Lugg saw it and I'd be absolutely delighted if a Māori person would say to me, um, you've misunderstood this entirely and Perhaps a or perhaps Arthur Lugg has, but this is how the Europeans saw it at the time. Perhaps they were wrong, mm-hmm. but that's the story from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear, and I don't know if there's one being written, but I'd love to hear the story from the Maori point of view, the same era, mm-hmm. the same time, and the same mm-hmm. people, but from their perspective. That'd be fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. The, the impression you get it towards the end is of a man who, through alcoholism, dissolution seems to have, ends his life in a rather, with a sense of failure and a sense mm. of frustration. Mm. Well, tell us a bit about the the latter. We've got the younger rake, mm. the older mm. one living in Canterbury. Mm. What, what happened towards the end there? That
1: That's, of, I don't cover that in the story. Yeah. I thought I had to end it when, yes. there was a time to end it. So I sent him home in disgrace in 43 or 44, 44 I think it was. Um, because Fitzroy stripped him down and, and yeah. told him off publicly and if Fitzroy didn't send him home his uncle did he said I can't deal with you anymore bugger off back to England um, and then he fell out with his father back in England and they, he his father he wrote this book he did very well out of the book it was a huge sensation in England um, but he was still getting drunker and drunker and, and causing havoc and spending all his money so his father sent him out with the Christchurch colony yeah. and he had some adventures on the ship. I think he was chasing a woman on the ship. There are quite a few stories mm-hmm. from other people mm-hmm. about him then. Not a lot that he's writing. He ended up in Canterbury for a while. He was elected to government a couple of times. His father then immigrated. Because up until this time, you know, people say, oh, Edward gibbon Wakefield. he's the father of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even here. He didn't mm-hmm. turn up, you know, until much later. I think mm-hmm. it was the 50s. And then journeying and went to spend some time with him in Wellington. By then he was married to a much younger woman. Mm-hmm. But he that all fell apart. He just was drunk and... They had a bit of a high life for a while, I think, in Canterbury, but I don't know much about that. It, it, it just went wrong. He was just couldn't keep a grip on things. Mm. And then he was doing the odd bit of writing, and he wrote a couple more books, not very successfully. And he just he ended up drunk on the side of the road. Mm. And was they found him and took him to the Almshouse in Ashburton, I think, and he's buried down there. Mm. Very sad, really.
0: So you really the, the novels were around the earlier part of his life, yeah. before he comes back to he Becomes a bit of a cause celeb, doesn't he? He does. So you have it before this sort of new notoriety. Do you think it was, a, was it was in his best interest to go back to London at that stage, or was it he had no choice? I think he
1: there? had no choice. I mean, yeah, he'd, he'd exactly. really queered his pitch in New Zealand, no, but yeah. they'd fallen out. I mean, he was the one that stirred up such terrible trouble between uh, the missionaries, particularly the missionaries, and Hobson and the subsequent government, and. Yeah. And the settlers, and the settlers actually weren't really having that anymore. They they'd come out very loyal to the New Zealand Company, but then that was only a stopgap for them until the colonialism, you know, until the British took sovereignty. That was just a stopgap. But the Jerningham was fighting that. He fought the, you know, he, he fought the government the whole time. He fought Auckland. This is the start of the great Auckland Wellington rift from right back then. Um, but he had, no, he was fighting with everybody, and then he started to fight with his own people and. He, he didn't really have many supporters in New Zealand left, so he had to go home, I think.
0: So you clearly got a great passion for New Zealand history. Have you got any, like a sense of where you're heading next in terms of your research and what what you wanted to do?
1: Uh, yeah, I've, I can't stop writing books. I've got a few of them on the go at the moment. I've got, um, I just published another book a couple of uh, last week about uh, the history of Napier and Norsewood. So it's a story about two families coming out, the Norwegians, which is my family, my great-great-grandparents came out 1872 and were promised uh, 40 acres of farm if they would go and work for the New Zealand government um, cutting down trees. And of course they turned up and they realized that the 40 acres farm was dense New Zealand bush, part of the 70 mile bush. Uh, so I've written that story. So that's now out there, it's called Displaced. And I'm I've got another story about a shipwreck, which I've sent out at the moment which someone's having a look at, and I'm starting to write one on the colonial Auckland, because I, I just, there's something about that Victorian age, that early Victorian time, they're all, um, there's such complicated morals, and the, the double standards that go on at the time, and particularly, I, I haven't mentioned it, but I sort of think that they're, they're quite strong women's stories as well, because women don't have a voice, they really don't, and so when you hear a woman speak, you kind of open the door, she speaks because yeah. she's been asked. And then you close the door and you don't hear from her again. And I did that in Jerningham. I really wanted to have a woman's voice in it. Yeah. But you can't have a woman partner because they, the women weren't partners with the men in those days. So they have to have a separate story. And they're not the interesting stories. All the diaries I've read of women are about domestic things. Mm. You know, we mm. wash, we washed today yeah. and we planted oh, these. And you don't, you know, the things were going on in the background. You know, the declaring sovereignty and all this sort of stuff. And the women are writing the diaries about how they planted the tulips. You know, it's just, you don't get the story from them. So um, I wanted that to be part of the stories I write as well. The fact that women were there and doing a lot of work in the background, but didn't really have a voice and had no agency to do anything.
0: Well, here at the, at the Heritage Collection, we love people like you who come in <laughs> to our collections and investigate and bring the stories to, to life. Um, is it archives and is that something you're passionate about sort of getting into the is that the research side of it something that excites you yeah
1: that's that's all i want well i i kind of i i I hated history at school because they told us about all these events that happened i'm not interested in events i'm interested in people you know the 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 events aren't stories Mm. so i went down to nelson once i was looking at the wairao business and end up in the archives there and just ask for some boxes from the air. And I got all these whole boxes of letters. And there were amazing stories. I mean, we had so many fantastic stories here. There was one, I remember, a young man called William Curling Young, and he was writing home to mum. And he was, a, he was a surveyor, and he wrote about 10 letters. I was reading through these letters. Oh, we've, you know, cut a track through the bush, and we made a hut, of this sort of thing. And he was talking about the little box of pencils she'd given him. And after about 10 letters there was a letter from Arthur Wakefield to his mother saying, sorry, young William was a fine young man, but he drowned in a river. That was it, gone. And I just, I was sitting there weeping in the, <laughs> down yeah. the archives, you know. But those right. stories, they I love the fact we've kept them. I love the fact they're there. And you could write a whole book about William Curling Young, He would be a great story. Um, but there's only so much time. I mean, um, you know, you're, you're right. You, you find these things, and you think, what would make a story? And hopefully people get excited and
0: How how much appetite do you think there is in New Zealand for uh, interest in New Zealand history? Because we're talking about, you know, we talked recently, which is I think, agree, this great move to have New Zealand history compulsory Mm. in the schools. Mm. That really, when you hear people moan that they never studied the Maoris or did this, and you think, well, there's actually some fantastic history books we can read. Do you think? Now there's that non-fiction side to it, but what you're doing is, the, so, is writing uh, fictional yes. representations. How do you feel about the audience for that? Is that something that they're used to? I know in, in our libraries we have all of those novels that were set in New Zealand in the 1910s and 20s and like a Maori yeah. land story, yeah. and there's a millions of them.
1: They're very patronising, some of yeah. them, so you couldn't. I think a modern audience wouldn't take those yes. now. They're so patronising.
0: Yeah. And um, what do you think the audience needs now? That, that, uh, that I, w- I yeah. want Maori
1: stories. Yeah. I really want. We've got and and, and Chinese stories yes. and you know the stuff that I'm telling I'm telling because these are my stories to tell. But I, I think we need the equivalent from Maori particularly, mm. um, but also any immigrant stories, stories about. We just need New Zealand stories. We just don't have enough. We really don't have enough. And there's you know so many things we could have and we just they're not told. Um, and I think if you tell them as stories rather than as a set of dry facts in a history class, you'll get people interested. I mean, we do have great storytellers like Deborah Chalinor and Fiona Kidman and, and, you know, all these people telling, fictionalising New Zealand history. But not enough. Not enough.
0: Kia ora, Well, thanks very much for speaking us today. It's been absolutely wonderful talk. We do kā Christina, thanks uh, for being with us today.
1: Kia and thank you so much.